Section 24 of The Adventures of Gerard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Last Adventure of the Brigadier. Continued. At last the wind which had followed us so long died away, and for several days we drifted about on a calm and oily sea, under a sun which brought the pitch bubbling out between the planks upon the deck. We turned and turned our sails to catch every wandering puff, until at last we came out of this belt of calm and ran south again with a brisk breeze, the sea all round us being alive with flying fishes. For some days Burns appeared to be uneasy, and I observed him continually shading his eyes with his hands and staring at the horizon as if he were looking for land. Twice I caught him with his red head against the chart in the cabin, gazing at that pin which was always approaching and yet never reaching the African coast. At last, one evening, as Captain Forno and I were playing écarté in the cabin, the mate entered with an angry look upon his sunburned face. "'I beg your pardon, Captain Forno,' said he. "'But do you know what course the man at the wheel is steering?' "'Due south,' the captain answered, with his eyes fixed upon his cards. "'And he should be steering due east.' "'How do you make that out?' The mate gave an angry growl. I may not have much education, said he, but let me tell you this, Captain Fourneau. I've sailed these waters since I was a little nipper of ten, and I know the line when I'm on it, and I know the doldrums, and I know how to find my way to the oil rivers. We are south of the line now, and we should be steering due east instead of due south, if your port is the port that the owner sent you to. Excuse me, Mr. Gerard. "'Just remember that it is my lead,' said the captain, laying down his cards. "'Come to the map here, Mr. Burns, and I will give you a lesson in practical navigation. "'Here is the trade wind from the south-west, and here is the line, "'and here is the port that we want to make, "'and here is a man who will have his own way aboard his own ship.' "'As he spoke, he seized the unfortunate mate by the throat, and squeezed him until he was nearly senseless. Kerouan, the steward, had rushed in with a rope, and between them they gagged and trussed the man, so that he was utterly helpless. "'There is one of our Frenchmen at the wheel. We had best put the mate overboard,' said the steward. "'That is safest,' said Captain Fourneau. "'But that was more than I could stand. Nothing would persuade me to agree to the death of a helpless man.' With a bad grace, Captain Forno consented to spare him, and we carried him to the afterhold, which lay under the cabin. There he was laid among the bales of Manchester cloth. "'It is not worth while to put down the hatch,' said Captain Forneau. "'Gustave, go to Mr. Turner, and tell him that I would like to have a word with him.' The unsuspecting second mate entered the cabin, and was instantly gagged and secured, as Burns had been. He was carried down and laid beside his comrade. The hatch was then replaced. "'Our hands have been forced by the red-headed dolt,' said the captain, "'and I have had to explode my mind before I wished. However, there is no great harm done, and it will not seriously disarrange my plans. Kerouan, you will take a keg of rum forward to the crew. Tell them that the captain gives it to them, to drink his health on the occasion of crossing the line.' They will know no better. As to our own fellows, 
bring them down to your pantry, so that we may be sure that they are ready for business. Now, Colonel Gerard, with your permission we will resume our game of écarté. It is one of those occasions which one does not forget. This captain, who was a man of iron, shuffled and cut, dealt and played, as if he were in his café. From below we heard the inarticulate murmurings of the two mates, half smothered by the handkerchiefs which gagged them. Outside the timbers creaked and the sails hummed under the brisk breeze which was sweeping us upon our way. Amid the splash of the waves and the whistle of the wind we heard the wild cheers and shoutings of the English sailors as they broached the keg of rum. We played half a dozen games and then the captain rose. I think they are ready for us now, said he. He took a brace of pistols from a locker and he handed one of them to me. But we had no need to fear resistance, for there was no one to resist. The Englishman of those days, whether soldier or sailor, was an incorrigible drunkard. Without drink he was a brave and good man, but if drink were laid before him it was a perfect madness, nothing could induce him to take it with moderation. In the dim light of the den which they inhabited, five senseless figures and two shouting, swearing, singing madmen represented the crew of the Black Swan. Coils of rope were brought forward by the steward, and with the help of two French seamen, the third was at the wheel, we secured the drunkards and tied them up, so that it was impossible for them to speak or move. They were placed under the forehatch, as their officers had been under the after one, and Kerouan was directed twice a day to give them food and drink, so at last we found that the Black Swan was entirely our own. Had there been bad weather I do not know what we should have done, but we still went gaily upon our way, with a wind which was strong enough to drive us swiftly south, but not strong enough to cause us alarm. On the evening of the third day I found Captain Forno gazing eagerly out from the platform in the front of the vessel. Look, Gerard, look, he cried, and pointed over the pole which stuck out in front. A light blue sky rose from a dark blue sea, and far away, at the point where they met, was a shadowy something, like a cloud, but more definite in shape. What is it? I cried. It is land. And what land? I strained my ears for the answer, and yet I knew already what the answer would be. It is St. Helena. Here, then, was the island of my dreams. Here was the cage where our great eagle of France was confined. All those thousands of leagues of water had not sufficed to keep Gerard from the master whom he loved. There he was, there on that cloud-bank, yonder over the dark blue sea. How my eyes devoured it! How my soul flew in front of the vessel, flew on and on, to tell him that he was not forgotten, that after many days one faithful servant was coming to his side. Every instant the dark blur upon the water grew harder and clearer. Soon I could see plainly enough that it was indeed a mountainous island. The night fell, but still I knelt upon the deck, with my eyes fixed upon the darkness which covered the spot where I knew that the great emperor was. An hour passed, and another one, and then, suddenly, a little golden twinkling light shone out exactly ahead of us. It was the light of the window of some house, perhaps of his house, it could not be more than a mile or two away. Oh, how I held out my hands to it! They were the hands of Etienne Gerard, 
but it was for all France that they were held out. Every light had been extinguished aboard our ship, and presently, at the direction of Captain Fourneau, we all pulled upon one of the ropes which had the effect of swinging round one of the sticks above us, and so stopping the vessel. Then he asked me to step down to the cabin. "'You understand everything now, Colonel Gerard,' said he, "'and you will forgive me if I did not take you into my complete confidence before. "'It is a matter of such importance. "'I make no man my confidant. "'I have long planned the rescue of the Emperor, "'and my remaining in England and joining their merchant service "'was entirely with that design. "'All has worked out exactly as I expected. "'I have made several successful voyages to the west coast of Africa,' so that there was no difficulty in my obtaining the command of this one. One by one I got these old French man-of-war's men among the hands. As to you, I was anxious to have one tried fighting man in case of resistance, and I also desired to have a fitting companion for the Emperor during his long homeward voyage. My cabin is already fitted up for his use. I trust that before tomorrow morning he will be inside it, and we out of sight of this accursed island. You can think of my emotion, my friends, as I listened to these words. I embraced the brave Fourneau, and implored him to tell me how I could assist him. I must leave it all in your hands, said he. Would that I could have been the first to pay him homage, but it would not be wise for me to go. The glass is falling, there is a storm brewing, and we have the land under our lee. Besides, there are three English cruisers near the island, which may be upon us at any moment. It is for me, therefore, to guard the ship, and for you to bring off the Emperor. I thrilled at the words. Give me your instructions, I cried. I can only spare you one man, for already I can hardly pull round the yards, said he. One of the boats has been lowered, and this man will row you ashore and await your return. The light which you see is indeed the light of Longwood. All who are in the house are your friends, and all may be depended upon to aid the Emperor's escape. There is a cordon of English sentries, but they are not very near to the house. Once you have got as far as that, you will convey our plans to the Emperor, guide him down to the boat, and bring him on board. The Emperor himself could not have given his instructions more shortly and clearly. There was not a moment to be lost. The boat with the seamen was waiting alongside. I stepped into it, and an instant afterward we had pushed off. Our little boat danced over the dark waters, but always shining before my eyes was the light of Longwood, the light of the Emperor, the star of hope. Presently the bottom of the boat grated upon the pebbles of the beach. It was a deserted cove, and no challenge from a sentry came to disturb us. I left the seamen by the boat, and I began to climb the hillside. There was a goat track winding in and out among the rocks, so I had no difficulty in finding my way. It stands to reason that all paths in St. Helena would lead to the Emperor. I came to a gate, no sentry, and I passed through. Another gate, still no sentry. I wondered what had become of this cordon of which Fourneau had spoken. I had come now to the top of my climb, for there was the light burning steadily right in front of me. I concealed myself and took a good look round, but still I could see no sign of the enemy. As I approached I saw the house, a long low building with a veranda, 
A man was walking up and down upon the path in front. I crept nearer and had a look at him. Perhaps it was this cursed Hudson Lowe. What a triumph if I could not only rescue the Emperor, but also avenge him. But it was more likely that this man was an English sentry. I crept nearer still, and the man stopped in front of the lighted window, so that I could see him. No, it was no soldier, but a priest. I wondered what such a man could be doing here, at two in the morning. Was he French or English? If he were one of the household, I might take him into my confidence. If he were English, he might ruin all my plans. I crept a little nearer still, and at that moment he entered the house, a flood of light pouring out through the open door. All was clear for me now, and I understood that not an instant was to be lost. Bending myself double, I ran swiftly forward to the lighted window. Raising my head, I peeped through, and there was the Emperor, lying dead before me. My friends, I fell down upon the gravel walk as senseless as if a bullet had passed through my brain. So great was the shock that I wondered that I survived it. And yet, in half an hour, I had staggered to my feet again, shivering in every limb, my teeth chattering, and there I stood, staring with the eyes of a maniac into that room of death. He lay upon a bier in the centre of the chamber, calm, composed, majestic, his face full of that reserve power which lightened our hearts upon the day of battle. A half-smile was fixed upon his pale lips, and his eyes, half-opened, seemed to be turned on mine. He was stouter than when I had seen him at Waterloo, and there was a gentleness of expression which I had never seen in life. On either side of him burned rows of candles, and this was the beacon which had welcomed us at sea, which had guided me over the water, and which I had hailed as my star of hope. Dimly I became conscious that many people were kneeling in the room. The little court, men and women who had shared his fortunes, Bertrand, his wife, the priest, Montalon, all were there. I would have prayed too, but my heart was too heavy and bitter for prayer. And yet I must leave, and I could not leave him without a sign. Regardless of whether I was seen or not, I drew myself erect before my dead leader, brought my heels together, and raised my hand in a last salute. Then I turned and hurried off through the darkness, with the picture of the wan, smiling lips and the steady grey eyes dancing always before me. It had seemed to me but a little time that I had been away, and yet the boatman told me that it was ours. Only when he spoke of it did I observe that the wind was blowing half a gale from the sea, and that the waves were roaring in upon the beach. Twice we tried to push out our little boat, and twice it was thrown back by the sea. The third time a great wave filled it and stove the bottom. Helplessly we waited beside it until the dawn broke, to show a raging sea and a flying scud above it. There was no sign of the black swan. Climbing the hill we looked down, but on all the great torn expanse of the ocean there was no gleam of a sail. She was gone. Whether she had sunk, or whether she was recaptured by her English crew, or what strange fate may have been in store for her, I do not know. Never again in this life did I see Captain Fourneau to tell him the result of my mission. For my own part I gave myself up to the English, my boatman and I pretending that we were the only survivors of a lost vessel. 
though indeed there was no pretense in the matter. At the hands of their officers I received the generous hospitality which I have always encountered, but it was many a long month before I could get a passage back to the dear land, outside of which there can be no happiness for so true a Frenchman as myself. And so I tell you in one evening how I bade good-bye to my master, and I take my leave also of you, my kind friends, who have listened so patiently to the long-winded stories of an old broken soldier. Russia, Italy, Germany, Spain, Portugal, and England, you have gone with me to all these countries, and you have seen through my dim eyes something of the sparkle and splendour of those great days, and I have brought back to you some shadow of those men whose tread shook the earth. Treasure it in your minds, and pass it on to your children, for the memory of a great age is the most precious treasure that a nation can possess. As the tree is nurtured by its own cast leaves, so it is these dead men and vanished days which may bring out another blossoming of heroes, of rulers, and of sages. I go to Gascony, but my words stay here in your memory, and long after Etienne Gerard is forgotten, a heart may be warmed or a spirit braced by some faint echo of the words that he has spoken. Gentlemen, an old soldier salutes you and bids you farewell. End of section 24 And end of The Adventures of Gerard by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Read by Philip Griffiths